0: Welcome to the 4th Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. In an ever-changing landscape, let's hash out where things stand today in 2021. Today, I'm joined by Elizabeth Spires, entrepreneur, journalist, and founding editor of Gawker. This is Episode 17. From growing up in Alabama to working for Jared Kushner to the Substack Discourse, we start with the founding of Gawker and what Gawker might be like today when it relaunches. I want to start with uh, way back to one of your first jobs, not your first because I'm going to talk about that later also, but uh, you were the founding editor of Gawker and yeah. uh, so when was that exactly? When did, it, when did Gawker officially start?
1: We, we launched Gawker in December of 2002.
0: Okay, got it. So 2002, you start with Gawker. And uh, Tell me about those those early days. Now we're looking at something that is almost twenty years old, and and we should note uh, the the not breaking news anymore, but the news that it's actually coming back now under editor Leah Finnegan, who I think is is great, um, and and there's potential for it to be it to be a uh, uh, maybe the Gawker of old, although I think there's complications there also, which we can get into. But twenty years ago was a very very different media environment, and and tell me about starting that. And some of those early days of Gawker.
1: Of sure. So uh, Nick Denton and I had met at a, a party for uh, Metafilter, which was a group blog and I want to say, 2000 or so. And we just got to be friends. We both had blogs. Um, and Nick was looking to develop a software company in New York. It was his third company. He'd already uh, sold one company in U.K., um, and had left a, another company that he co-founded called Moreover um, in San Francisco. So he wasn't really planning on building a, you know, a media company per se, but he was very interested in blogging what the potential for it was. So we launched Gawker as a kind of experiment to see if you could do you know, topically themed blogs and, and make them work commercially. And Nick had already launched Gizmodo, which is a tech blog, uh, a couple months or a few months before uh, we ended up launching Gawker, but um, we all thought Gawker was just going to be a kind of side project and, you know, a part-time thing. And then it blew up and I realized I was spending, you know, 50 hours a week on it. Uh, and, and it was kind of a, a full-time job. So, uh, so neither of us anticipated where it was going to go, but we, I think we were pleasantly surprised that it had the success that it did.
0: Yeah, yeah, it had it had very early success and sustained success. And I think, you know, one of the, the things is is it sort of poked at at power in a way that was I, I don't want to say it was rare at the time, but I actually think that if it were to have that same mission now it would be even more rare. Um, I, I don't know if if there's as much of that countercultural type of content that's happening, particularly in in the media space um, that it that it would now be occupying as it was at that time. I think it, I think it's it's we've seen a drift in a way. Um, and I know you kind of alluded to this on Twitter, but like you know Nick in particular really embraced like you know. Pissing off people in power, and and I'm not sure that there's a lot of owners of a of a publication like a Gawker now that that would react that same way.
1: Yeah, Nick. I mean, Nick's a rare person in, in a lot of ways, uh, and it's hard to find media owners who who really enjoy that aspect of, of running a news organization, which is sort of inevitable if you if you are reporting on power that, that eventually. Uh, even if you don't have the tone and orientation of Gawker, you're gonna make somebody angry and you know they'll, they'll try to retaliate. Uh, so you you need an owner who can sort of tolerate that, but also understands why it's a journalistic necessity. and Nick had a background in journalism, and I think that heavily affected the way he thought about it. Um, but you know he he enjoyed it when a Gawker held people's feet to the fire and and there was a response like that.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a quote that I like, which I I don't think, I think it's been misattributed to lots of different people, but, you know, something along the lines of, uh, you know, journalism is printing what people don't want printed and everything else is public relations. Um, And and, (laughs) uh, we, we, you know, we certainly have have seen a drift there uh, in that. Uh, Let me ask you though about the the current iteration of it. Um, So it's going to be under the bustle umbrella. Uh, Brian Goldberg there is, um, you know, the, 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 owner of bustle. And, you know, I think on some ways, Leah is, you know, going to bring a sensibility that feels like we'll push against it. And then in other ways you've got bustle, which is, which is certainly not Nick Denton, whether you, you know, you like Brian or not, um, you know, they're, they're I don't know if, if, if having those sorts of power fights is something that, that he might have the stomach for. Um, so I wonder how that's going to go.
1: Yeah. I, I don't, I, I'm interested to see how it goes. I think Leah is a great hire, um, you know, I talked to Brian the last time he, he was going to relaunch Gawker. <laughs> uh, we're, we're friendly, although we, we disagree on a lot of things. Um, and, you know, one of the things that my impression of his orientation toward it was that he understands that it's not bustle. Um, yeah. And that particularly if, if your motivation for buying Gawker is that you want a property that has the influence that Gawker had, uh, you know, it, it, it has to be a different thing. And and I think he's sort of come to understand that uh, Gawker's influence comes partly because of that orientation to power. I think in the, in the early days when he, when he bought the property, uh, he had this sort of notion that you could do uh, just purely entertainment-oriented version of Gawker that would be mostly nice to people. <laughs> and and I I said, look, maybe there's a market for that, but that's that's not Gawker. You know, if, if what you want is uh, the gawker that had influence and the people needed to read, you you can't have this sort of power-worshipping orientation. And I think that, I wonder if, if that's going to be hard for Brian, because he, he's a pretty hardcore, I would say, libertarian, who particularly doesn't like it when, <laughs> I, I think, uh, liberal-leaning people um, complain about what rich people do with their money. Uh, so, but I... I Presume, you know, just based on the fact that he hired Leah, and not, you know, another Dan Perez type editor, that he's he understands that better now. Um, we also had a conversation about unionization at the time, and I told him I thought unionization was inevitable, especially if he was going to uh, relaunch Gawker. And he he sort of disagreed with me at the time because I, I think Bustle wasn't unionized then. Um, and, and I just I, I think it's inevitable for any media company of a certain size now because uh, partly because the media business is so unstable. Um, but now Bustle's unionized, so Brian either uh, I don't know that he came around, but he had to accept that that was happening.
0: Yeah, that's been an interesting side story. I think in, among the media is, is you look at places like a BuzzFeed or you know even frankly like Amazon, uh, and and you see theoretically left leaning individuals and organizations, uh, have a big resistance to unionization uh, among their, their group. Um, let me, let me pick up on one thing you said about, about power and, and particularly rich people. Uh, I want to play a clip. This was, I was doing some research, uh, for this and stumbled on, this was after you had left Gawker, Emily Gould, who was the editor, uh, at the time in 2007 was on Larry King live when Jimmy Kimmel was guest hosting, uh, listen to this exchange.
2: Make I just want so you to think about your life and, um, you know, <laughs> just wow. weigh your options. And uh, I mean, because I would hate to see um, you arriving in hell and somebody sending a text message saying, guess who's here?
1: <laughs> you I know do. what I'm saying? Honestly, I think that there's a shifting definition of what is public and what is private space for everyone, not just celebrities. The Internet, blogs, MySpace, no one has the reasonable expectation of being able to walk down the street and not have
2: what they're doing be noticed by someone Well, that is just that is just a terrible thing, though, isn't it? is not it? I mean, just is it
1: really? I mean, I yeah, think it's great it that is. we're not putting people up on a pedestal and worshipping them anymore. I think it's good that people are acknowledging and that celebrities are real people. You're throwing
2: rocks at them, though. I mean, it seems to me that Aren't they celebrities... Kind of
0: protected by piles of money from those rocks? No,
2: I mean... no. No, not, no, and by the way, not all celebrities are wealthy. I mean, you know, that's a silly and stupid thing to say. You know that. Come on now. Just because people have money means it's okay to, to say false things about them, to tear them down? It's I mean, not that's okay not... to
1: say false things about anyone. I'm well,
2: not you should about... check your website then. Thank you for uh, talking to us. <laughs>
0: I'm curious your thoughts. I, I remember watching that at the time, feeling conflicted in some ways. But yeah. I, I watch that now, and my God, I mean, if, if, if with every passing year, I think Emily looks better and Jimmy looks worse in that exchange.
1: Yeah, well, the, the, I mean, the the worst part of that exchange is is uh, his assertion that what Gawker was printing was false. Right. And, and you know, I think Emily in the moment just wasn't expecting that exchange. But I would have, if it had been me, I would have said, "What, what is it that you think Gawker's printing that that is not true?" Um, I do, you know, and I don't think this is really what Emily meant by. It, but uh, you know, I disagree with her assertion that you know anybody walking down the street is a public figure now. Um, and I think you know there there are a lot of considerations that go into that. You know, with, you know, legally and ethically. Um, there's, you know, a consideration in, in uh, from a legal standpoint about who might constitute a, a temporary public figure because they're part of a major event or contextually they're important. And that's not just politicians and celebrities. But it does strike me as pretty rich for somebody like Jimmy Kimmel who's saying, well, not all celebrities are rich. Well, that might be true, but Jimmy Kimmel is rich at least <laughs> relative to most Americans. And you know, Emily's point is, If you've got an army of PR people you know doing this work for you and then and by the way also planning items about you uh which was very common when i you know i mean i haven't done entertainment journalism now in like 20 years but uh while i was writing gawker i was also um sort of copy editing and top editing parts of page six and i just remember you know people's publicists would call in and tell you where they were and what they'd been doing Uh, And then the celebrity would turn around and complain that Page Six printed it. Um, So there's a little bit of, with entertainment journalism, there's kind of a celebrity racket going on where the celebrities pay people to raise their profiles and then complain when their profiles are raised and uh, (laughs) unflattering things come out. Yeah.
0: And if anything, over, you know, the, the span since that aired 14 years ago, the, the evolution has been, I would say, in celebrity media, a lot of celebrities and public figures taking the, the the public relations reign onto themselves, you know, with social media and being able to kind of control their image more and, and you know, keeping entertainment media even further at an arm's length. Um, but it actually does remind me of other situations of power, whether it comes to government or, uh, you know, in media, in, in, in political figures, in, in media figures, there is not a not a direct payment uh, for it, but, but there's definitely a sense of, of, you know, coverage in a certain way raises a profile in a certain way, and you start to poke that, you start to, to poke holes in it, you start to go against it. I think of people like an Andrew Cuomo it's it, they're, they're going to be quite resistant to it, even if they protect, you know, are on uh, a, a certain side.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, yeah, in the case of Cuomo, I've, I've sort of always maintained that if the capital of New York were in New York City, he would not be governor because I think uh, it, it's the, the fact that the capital is in Albany um, gives him a little bit of a remove from the kind of scrutiny that politicians in New York get. And and I'm not on a side in the Cuomo versus De Blasio fight. I I, I think they're both terrible in their own way. Uh, but I, I do think that you know the recent scrutiny that he's getting, partly because his profile has been raised because of COVID. Um, you know that that it would have been nice if that had been happening all along, but you just didn't have enough people devoted to frankly covering him. You know, and and that's partly a function of the attenuation of local journalism, uh, how, you know, um, people just don't have as many resources to devote to state government. Um, so in a way, uh, you know, I'm as someone who did not vote for Cuomo. I'm pretty happy that, that he's getting the scrutiny now because I think it's overdue. Uh, but it's absolutely a function of his profile being higher because of what's happening with covid
0: Right. That now, yeah. Now it was raised uh, a year ago, and now it's now it's being called into question for sure. Um, It actually does bring up another another point, which I don't know. You may you and I may disagree on, but I I look at a a place like Gawker, and I think about what what is what does it mean to be countercultural now? And you know, we're coming off of four years of of Donald Trump, where it was very easy to you know poke quote unquote power and and you know call power to account when Donald Trump was the president. I mean, that just became it became part of the mainstream to do that. I mean, you've got people like Jim Acosta on CNN doing it and, and others, you know, previous, I would say journalists, um, raising their profile as kind of, you know, resistance members. Where Whereas now the, the targets of those, if it, if it's still in kind of Trump world, you know, Republican politicians, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, if that's what, if Gawker's poking those, that's not particularly interesting or countercultural. um, but are they going to, you know, turn their sights on other places of power? Not even necessarily Democratic politicians, but people like, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world. Yeah. Um, and is that going to be a focus? Because it's not really happening very often among media circles.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that would be my first instinct. Um, and, and it would have been even even during the Trump administration, because there are all these things that have sort of come to the forefront and, I think the last couple of decades that uh, thanks to more expansive media, average people are more aware of, they're more aware of money in politics. Uh, they're more aware of the extent to which, you know, our, our country's plutocracy controls things that they shouldn't. Um, I was just thinking because there there was a bunch of stuff on Twitter about Elon Musk because he's hosting SNL. Yeah. Uh, and there was a tweet from Josh Barrow that said something. And I couldn't tell if he was being serious about this, but he said, you know, the real reason why people hate Elon Musk is because he's decoupled decarbonization from a kind of, I guess he was insinuating, uh, liberal ethos, and because Musk is kind of the the ultimate dude bro incarnation that people just don't like it. And I, I just thought, like, that that's a crazy... Yeah, I wrote a whole column about why people don't like Musk, and that, that did not even occur to me, but uh, it's also disingenuous, and I was thinking about... Because Musk has been such a uh, cheerleader and hype beast for cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular. It's, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, a good gawker piece or a piece for a gawker-like site would be to just do a calculation about how much, you know, Elon Musk's Bitcoin cheerleading has probably cost us in carbonation or, um, you know, decarbonation points. Yeah. Uh, versus what, you know, electric cars are, are getting us, you know, and, and it would, that would be a good, solid, you know, Gawker story that would work now. It is about an orientation toward power. It's uh, it, it, I think, approaches Musk with the right skepticism and there would be some, you know, meatiness to it that's actually useful.
0: Why do you think people don't like Elon Musk? I mean, I I, I find him interesting and fascinating and pretty smart. Um, I, I I always assumed it's because he kind of like sort of was supportive of Donald Trump uh, and and kind of hinted that he was voting for him.
1: That's I don't that's not any I, I didn't write about that either. I, I think that's true of Peter Thiel. Yeah, uh, I think with Musk, it's that he he believes he's above the law in every single respect, uh, whether it's union busting or um, fawning the SEC openly, um, because he thinks that laws are for, for little people. He's got the same attitude, attitude that Trump does. Uh, and he is a smart guy, but he also comes across sometimes as a sociopath. He doesn't have empathy for other people. You know, when his, uh, he had a child who who died as an infant and he, uh, complained that his ex-wife was manipulating him emotionally because she was openly grieving about it. Um, And I think there's just, you know, with some people enormous amounts of money just make them less empathetic. It's not, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that that happens, but because they're able to sort of create an entire world around themselves where they never have to accommodate anybody else. It's almost like that empathy impulse just gets eroded. So when uh, Musk moved Tesla plant uh, and made all the frontline workers come to work in the middle of a pandemic. And, and then there was an outbreak at Tesla. I mean, that that's another example of like, well, it's easy for Elon Musk not to say this isn't a big deal. He'll be first in line to get a vaccination. He has the best health care in the world. Uh, but he doesn't really give a shit about Tesla workers. Uh, so that that's my impression of why people, you know, uh, hate him. He's just, um, you know, he's an arrogant guy who thinks that laws that apply to everybody else don't apply to him.
0: What was it like working for Jared Kushner in a pre-Trump administration role as the editor of the New York Observer? Let me transition this to another rich guy, uh, because you have an interesting experience working for Jared Kushner uh, for yep. for about 18 months. You wrote about this in The Washington Post in uh, 2017, shortly after the Trump administration began. Um, and this was when, you know, he owned the New York Observer. You ended up, uh, you were running the uh, the editor of the New York Observer for a bit. And yep. I, I was interesting to look back on it because I know you you had a complicated relationship with him. Obviously, he was about as close to power as you can get being uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law and very involved in a, a variety of, of uh, components. Of the last four years, um, and it was interesting. You know, I, I I wonder if this was if my impression was sort of accurate. It, it, certainly, there were criticisms I think you had of him about his cost cutting, his uh, you know the financial side of it, but not necessarily on the on the editorial end of it. Um, you think that's fair? What was your experience like working with him?
1: Well, you know, one thing to understand about Jared's ownership of the Observer is that he didn't buy the paper because he was interested in owning a newspaper, or he Cared about journalism, you know. He thought it would give him a certain amount of influence in in New York in a way that he he wanted. So where we had conflicts, in a lot of cases, it was about you know how the journalism got done, or Jared just not understanding, or, or willfully um, avoiding, you know, core ethical issues in terms of you know how you navigate conflicts of interest, um, you know how you talk about power. And the Observer is, you know, it was, it was the Observer and Gawker are not totally dissimilar. They have a totally different audience, but uh, the Observer was about how power worked in New York um, and, you know, the weirdness of power in New York. So, it, you know, we were always writing about personalities, some of whom were powerful people. And I think anybody who's the owner of a paper like that, you're going to get phone calls from people who just don't like oh, yeah. the coverage and try to, you know, bully you into. Um, you know, changing it. And on some level, Jared liked that he was getting those phone calls, but he he didn't know how to navigate. Um, he didn't know how to say no. So he would, he would, you know, do things like lie to the people about what was happening. And, and Jared's a little bit like his father-in-law, is a little bit of a coward about those things. He's, he's you know, non-confrontational um, to people that he, he views at peer level or above or especially if he wants to impress them. So we would have some arguments about stuff like that, where I was just, you know, you, you always felt like you were talking to somebody speaking a different language about why you couldn't just print something that's false because, you know, uh, and, and I think for the most part, we, we navigated it. Okay. But partly because I had these conversations with Jared before I took the job, one was about, budgets and I made him show me, you know, the, the observer's books because I, I needed to sort of understand what resources we were working with. And then the second one was just, you know, I asked him point blank how many stories he'd killed under the previous editor. And he said two, and I didn't believe him, but I said, you know, if it's two, I, I can probably live with that. So I, every time he tried to kill something, I would ask him, you know, is this one of your two?
0: <laughs> the veto. Yeah.
1: yeah. And he, he would, he would back off. Uh, We usually had to have a long conversation about it. And I mean, you and I have have tussled on Twitter. I have a lot of stamina for arguing about something. So sometimes I think I would just exhaust him into, you know, a corner and and he'd he'd throw in the towel. But, um, you know, he he wasn't necessarily on the side of the journalist. He doesn't like journalists. He blames journalists for everything that happened with his dad. Yeah. Uh, and he thinks fundamentally, if you're a journalist, like you, you, must be some kind of sucker because you could go work in commercial real estate and make a lot more money. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I see. I, I, but I mean, even that, you know, I'm, I'm still, it's, it's not like there was an ideological purpose to it. And, and I, I look, I mean, I, I don't think anyone would pretend that even donald trump was particularly ideological before he got yeah. into politics so it, i i it's not surprising necessarily and i don't think jared and ivanka are particularly ideolo- ideological but it but it wasn't that necessarily it was the kind of the power and and, and frankly it's we we haven't heard because i again i'm not to go back to bezos and the washington you know but in his work with the washington post but like we haven't heard a lot of him you know yeah. stepping into it yet um but I, I don't think that is, that fear is not unfounded either, because not necessarily from an ideological perspective, but from uh, a power perspective.
1: Yeah, it's always a concern when you have a a rich person who, who owns a media property, you know, it's, to what extent are they going to view it as a, a kind of vanity project or not? Um, you know, full disclosure, I write political columns for the Washington Post semi-regularly, but... Uh, my friends there at least tell me that Bezos is very hands off, which is good. Um, I, I would say if, if, if I were doing Gawker again, I would keep an eye on it. <laughs> Anytime a billionaire buys a, a large, uh, reputable media property, I, th- I think that's potentially um, an area where you, you could have conflict or corruption.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't think he's alone in it either. I mean, you've got Mark Benioff with, uh, with Time Magazine be a little less reputable uh, after the iterations it's gone through. But I I think that this is probably happening more and more. It wouldn't honestly shock me if Elon Musk buys a media property at some point also. Coming up, like the rest of the media, we are going to dive into the substack discourse. That is next. But first, it's time for another edition of How Did This Get Published? In the wake of the Chauvin verdict and the Makia Bryant shooting, there's been unusually poor media coverage. So let's dive into one of them. The Associated Press published a much discussed piece headlined, One Verdict, Then Six Police Killings Across America in 24 Hours. The double byline story tracks six killings by police in the 24 hours after the Chauvin verdict. The roll call of the dead is distressing, the piece read, before listing a few of the basic details in a few of the cases. This broad brush framing then starts diving into the details. Some happened while officers investigated serious crimes. Police say some of the people were armed with a gun, knife, or a metal pole. One man claimed to have a bomb that he threatened to detonate. In several cases, little is known about the lives of those killed and what happened in their final moments. It reads, The deadly encounters are only a small snapshot of the thousands of interactions between American police officers and civilians every day, most of which end safely. Uneventful encounters between the police and the populace, however, are not an issue. It's a very different story when a weapon is drawn and a life ends. Besides being entry-level journalism school writing, it points to the big problem with the piece. Quote, six police killings in the headline is a completely misleading framing for an article, particularly when the details of the, quote, killings are framed with the George Floyd killing and the Chauvin case. Here's how the article described one of the six killings. Authorities say a man killed a person working in a shed outside his home. As officers arrived, the suspect started shooting at the police. They returned fire, killing him. None of this belongs in an article that uses the Chauvin verdict as a news hook. All of these sad deaths deserve far better treatment than being used as pawns in a cultural battle meant to prove some larger, strained point. The AP, how did this get published? Back with Elizabeth in a minute, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free, no subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Elizabeth Spires. Let me talk a little about um, cancel culture. Uh, because also, and I, I've, I've enjoyed, enjoyed your work, and you, and you mentioned, you know, we, we kind of have it out a little bit on, on Twitter. I, I really enjoy following you, particularly the parts that I disagree with. Um, I think, so you write for Substack now. You have a Substack, um, my new band is, uh, for which people should subscribe to. And at the same time, I think your, uh, you, you know, the the idea that there's this rise of Substack that is a uh, indicative of where the industry going, or I guess potentially a good thing. I think you would maybe push back against on some point, right? I mean, do you, you think that would, would that be a fair interpretation of kind of where you feel about how the Substack coverage, the discourse on Substack is is happening right now?
1: I, I mostly think the Substack uh, discourse is, is funny because it, it reads to me like the the early aughts blog discourse, right. where people were you know, and people didn't really know what a blog was, and, and there was a lot of speculation that blogs were going to ruin media. Um, and and there's some irony to that. There there are a lot of the people who are going back to Substack now, started out as bloggers in the early aughts, you know, sort of Andrew Sullivan's of the world, uh, Glenn Greenwald. Um, so to me, it feels a little bit full circle. Uh, I, I do think that Substack doesn't work for, you know, all kinds of journalism. I think it really, um, is good for people who want to do commentary and already have a little bit of an audience, uh, cause it's very hard to build a newsletter from scratch if, if you don't have audience. Um, right. and there may be, it's, it's sort of like writing a book. I, I feel like people are seeing these huge advances and big success stories coming out of Substack and they think. Oh, anybody can do that. But, you know, most people who write books, get tiny advances, and, and they don't make most of their money doing it. And I think Substack is that kind of economy. You're going to have a handful of people who just make crazy money doing it because they already have audiences, and they're all, you know, pundit types. Um, and then the average person, like, you know, I feel like I have the average readership, and, you know, it's like it pays my Verizon bill right now. <laughs> uh, that That's about it. Um, and I've been doing it partly because there, there were some things that I wanted to write about, that I just wasn't sure where to put them. And I wanted to do, do them in this kind of essay format. that's a little bit personal and there's not really a market for that outside of essay collections and books. And and I want to be able to just put random stuff there. You know, at some point I might put short fiction there. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's like a fun side thing that gets, gets, arguments i want to make out of my system uh and if it if i end up being able to build an audience there and it becomes more of a sustainable thing for me that's icing on the cake but i just don't have the expectation that it's it's gonna you know upturn all of media if anything there's an endless supply of would-be opinion columnists so if those are the people who are moving out of major newspapers i don't think you're gonna have trouble developing a new pipeline of people who will uh Right
0: opinion for money. Well, that yeah, you definitely won't have. The supply uh, is is uh, is is not going to dry up, but uh, but but I also wonder like what are we getting into? And and I think like um, you t- you talk about. These terms that get thrown around, cancel culture, I know you had a, had a good thread about, you know, either Ben Smith's uh, column recently in the New York Times, which talked about the um, uh, amount of, of money that is, is being paid by Substack to certain individuals um, who, for the most part, like you mentioned, already have a platform or already have an audience on a personal, you know, platforms like Twitter and, and others. Uh and then we're we're hearing stories like from Business Insider about people who are getting you know attempted to be poached by Substack over you know for people like Taylor Lorenz, who you know massive amounts three hundred thousand uh, uh, dollar you know offers that that uh, I, I don't think materialized. Uh, but but then you also wrote a column recently about kind of woke and again without getting into talking about the terms cancel culture and the terms woke, yeah. I do look at people like a Glenn Greenwald and say if Glenn Greenwald's voice is only being relegated to his own platform, not by his own, uh, you know, be, not, not because he wants that to be the case, but because he is, and, and same thing with Andrew Sullivan, being essentially pushed out of more mainstream publications that have a wider audience, then who is going to be left except sort of a general orthodoxy, a smaller purview of, of views that will be put out in opinion sections or in news sections?
1: I would say, you know, to that, I just don't believe that's happening. Like the, the people that you're talking about who have left mainstream publications have all left, with the exception of Sullivan, left of their own accord. This is why, you know, when, when Bari Rice left the Times and, and sort of claimed that she was pushed out, I just thought, you know, Ross Duad is, is to the right of her. If this was an ideological issue, her people would be out of the Times before Bari, Um and and you know with Sullivan, Sullivan's notoriously you know he doesn't take editing, he doesn't listen to us. There are people who are just difficult to work with. I think uh, it's not what they're writing because you can find more uh, right-leaning stuff in, in all of these publications. Um, and, and in Glenn's case, it's the idea that he doesn't. Substack is his only platform. You know, every time I see a Fox News clip, his, his face is on there with Tucker Carlson. So. I don't think he has a shortage of People willing to platform
0: him. him. Well, uh, Fox though is is a different like, but you know, yes, uh, Andrew, you know, didn't get I don't know, got fired or just didn't get his contract renewed. Barry left on her own accord. Glenn though was kind of a, in the middle, I would say, because he essentially left because of an argument over a piece that that would have been watered down to the point of meaningless during the height of the election about the Hunter Biden New York Post story and the validity of that story, uh, and and sort of the pushback of of the tech censorship that. That was around that, and and that's a view that I think is is legitimate. Um, and you know, people may disagree with it, but the idea that that would not be able to be published at a place that you know, The Intercept was not, you know, not even hardly mainstream. Um, but you know, in the height of an election, something that may move people's you know thoughts on, on this, particularly people you know that are independent, I think that that is the kind of voice that is now being put somewhere else that's not you know given a bigger platform.
1: I would say again, I don't think I think that's that's the the self-serving Glenn narrative about what happened, but there there is also plenty of reporting that indicates that there was a lot of conflict within the intercept around uh, you know the way Glenn operates and some of the reporting. So one of the things about you know, when you see these very public uh, departures, um, and I say this putting on my having been a manager, Hat he's hard hired and manage people. A lot of times the, the sort of precipitating event that leads somebody to leave is not necessarily the, the entire reason why they're leaving. And especially if there are internal conflicts or somebody's, uh, you know, not performing, not getting along with their colleagues, they're usually a series of conversations that happen before that final blow up comes. Oh, yeah. And in, in Glenn's case, I'm, I'm 100% sure that. That, I don't think he would dispute
0: right, that. I mean, he's an asshole. I think he would probably yeah. admit that he doesn't like editing. You know, <laughs> I think I don't he, think that
1: he. He that... said that he refuses to be edited.
0: Right, right.
1: It's very difficult to manage people like that, regardless of their you know ideological positions. Uh, and if you're responsible for the integrity of the publication as the editor, you have to be able to tell reporters no sometimes. Uh, and and Glenn can can never be told no. So. Substack is great for him. Nobody's going to tell him no. He can publish whatever he wants. Uh, But that's a choice, you know. Glenn could. There, there are plenty of outlets that would platform Glenn. Like, do you not think that NRO wouldn't give him a column? Like, I, 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 I have trouble believing that he can't go anywhere
0: well but i think that i think it gets no yes of course absolutely they would and it's probably not you know financially beneficial or even really you know culturally relevant you know i I think he's more cultural relevance in what he's doing now than he than he would if he if he got a gig at uh you know national review or the daily wire or something I
1: think raised his profile i think he is he's probably more high profile now than he has been in the last five years or so
0: Five years. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, with the, his work with, uh, you yeah. know, with Edward Sometimes Snowden I mean, and the, Coach,
1: Coach Snowden. I think he's,
0: he's, yeah. Yeah. I mean that put him on the map and then, yeah, I think you're right. I think this is probably the, the next, the next best thing here, um, for him. Uh, uh, but, but I also, you know, look at something like Barry Weiss versus Roth Ross uh, doubt it, and it's like, okay, well, you know, yes, I agree politically he's to the to the right of her. but but the issues that they are writing about, and I like Ross, I think he's a good writer. Um, but Barry is touching on a certain third rail at this point, which isn't even left or right. It's more of what is culturally, you know, capital U unacceptable um, in 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 the current discourse to to be kind of weighing in on.
1: Yeah, I don't. I think there are a lot of people talking about that. I think you know, with Bari. You, you also have to consider that she made a lot of her colleagues angry when she took to Twitter to complain that you know millennials were running ruining the New York Times.
0: Yeah. During that, um, that internal. It's uh,
1: like if you're a little bit of, if you're a jerk to your colleagues, it doesn't matter where you are in the ideological spectrum, you know, people just won't put up with it. Um, especially in newsrooms. I mean,
0: yeah, I think she would say she, they were being a jerk to her first and, you know, and then that, you know, it, it was a whole,
1: a whole well, bit. maybe, I mean, we don't know, right. Yeah. I, that's, that's not the story that, that I keep hearing, but I don't have, I don't know people around Bari who, who were friends with her in the newsroom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I do think, you know, I understand why, and I've written about it. Like I, I, I my sub stack is heavily right now about culture war issues, but here's the thing, the culture war matters. Like I don't, I don't, when people dismiss it with the implication that these things are all, you know, stupid self-indulgent frivolities, it's like, no, every single thing that you think is dumb and uh, symbolic has an underlying thing that, that really is not. Like it's, So even even talking about this terminology, you know, I have a Substack that I'm going to publish that's about, you know, why people get so incensed at the taxonomy of this. It's like, you know, why does it bother you that people put pronouns in their bio bio or you know, use the phrase trigger, you know, the word triggered? Um, I, I think because it's it's always a sort of academic discourse that sits on top of real world stuff that's that's really happening and that really matters. So when I when I hear people talk about cancel, here's my here's my objection to the the idea behind it. I, th- I think people get fired for stupid reasons all the time, and they get fired unjustly. Um, I don't think it, in a, any kind of systemic way people are being fired all over the place for having unacceptable ideologically ideological views. I think they they pretty routinely get fired for saying and doing bigoted things in public but I don't think bigotry is an ideology you know like, unless yeah. the right really wants to align itself with with bigotry which sometimes it does um so my, my thing is just is, is this thing really systemic like are people really being canceled and, I, and then there's a the secondary question of even if you thought it was systemic and you look at all these high-profile people who are getting canceled—like, are, are they really getting canceled? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, the the h- highest-profile people it. are $40 not. Four million
1: dollars to go to Substack. Like, what kind of cancellation is that? And how do I get it?
0: No, I I uh, don't think I don't think that the most high-profile people are, you know, realistically getting canceled. I wrote a column about this. I, I don't even think people like a Don McNeil are really getting canceled um, because, you know, it, it, there's there's a lot at play there. But I, I would say, you know, without waiting into the pronoun thing, I think that the it's less about people putting the pronouns in the bios. Then the idea that if you don't, then you are somehow a bigot. It's, it's the, it's the yeah, absence of I, something that is. I
1: always think that's just, you know, projection and insecurity. Like I, I get, a, I have them in my bio because, you know, it's, it's important to some people I know. It's important to some of the students that I teach. And, and it's a way to just sort of normalize it and say, you know, this is a polite thing to do. I don't judge people for not not doing it like yeah. and I don't know anybody who who does well there, it, there is a little bit of on the right there's this sort of notion that if things are consistently accepted on the left that you know they're, they're going to be just forced on the right some, somehow like you're all going to have to talk about critical race theory And <laughs> it's like no that's that's not what's happening uh, it, at all like that's these are these of things that are mostly exist in the realm of um discussion around Activists and academics, and people like you know pundits on Twitter. But like, then, it, like, but
0: it is it is now getting into you know certain school curriculums. I mean that that is where it's starting to seep into it. And and I look, I, you know, you you grew up in Alabama. Um, I live now in Texas, although I I was grew up in on the East Coast. But I do wonder about the the you know New York and DC centric nature of our media. Coverage and the people that exist there now, um, yeah. w- you know what they are missing about the rest of the country. That is not ideological. That is not political, but is cultural about community, about uh, you know about the way people live and interact. That they're, they're that are missing the bigger thing. And I think it happens on both sides. I think that you know a lot of the things that that maybe make up uh, what the the day to day of Fox News is not what what drives people's lives on the right. That are in you know that are not on the East coast, uh, and, and oh. vice versa. Same thing with MSNBC and CNN on the left and people that are in Alabama and Texas.
1: Yeah. And I think there's some, you know, it's, Fox has an incentive to brand things like critical race theory as, as some insidious, uh, you know, threat to something. But the funny thing is like, you know, I have relatives who, who get all their news from Facebook and Fox and, you know, if, if they mention something like critical race theory, first of all, they never actually know what it is. It's just like however Fox positioned it. And the thing about critical race theory in particular is that it's been around for decades and it doesn't come out of the philosophy department. It comes out of the legal, it comes out of the law school. Uh, so 90% of the people who talk about it they literally don't know what it is. And there was a funny thing, like Fox did an explainer about the the word intersectionality a while ago, which is now critical race Iris, uh, who's a legal scholar, um, was talking about that in the context of certain uh, types of legal cases where, for instance, if you were on the if you were uh, suing somebody for discrimination, say you were a black woman, you were only allowed to sue them on the basis that you were a woman or that you were a black person. And, and Crenshaw makes an argument that these things are compounded because you know, they, they affect each other. And that's kind of I mean, that's that's a simplified version of what it means. But somebody was arguing with Ben Shapiro about it and they sent him Crenshaw's paper, you know, sort of seminal founding where she coins the term and asked him what he actually objected to. And to his credit, he did read the paper, which I think is unusual for him. (laughs) And he said, uh, "Well, I don't object to anything per se. It's just the more the way people are deploying it. It's like, well, who are you talking about? The way Fox is deploying
0: it? No, I think, the, but but no, I think that's a perfect example, though, of of both sides of it. Because, and I, I hate to be the both sides person, but of of also on the left. I mean, I I agree. I think intersectionality as a as a concept makes perfect sense. But the way it's being deployed on the left, also, and you talk about you know people who are getting their news from Facebook and from say MSNBC are not getting are getting a certain sameness, a flatness to to you know, a lack of nuance to to stories that that I think is different than even the environment that we were in five or ten years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's that's also just that's hugely a cable news problem. Uh you know people most people can't differentiate between journalism and commentary anyway. Uh, I, I think it's increasingly a problem that that they can't. Uh, so you know we we have they, they will sort of assume that a commentary piece coming from a talking head that can be wildly inaccurate is is journalism because it's on a cable network that, that has news in the, in the name. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and these things are not, um, you know, a live on air newscast is not fact checked and reported the way a newspaper story
0: is. Um, yeah, but people are heralded that, that way. I mean, certainly, you know, yeah. it, it, that, the, uh, the cable news hosts on on MSNBC, CNN and Fox are treated like, um, you know, by their audience, like they are, you know, the, the, these truth tellers um, when in many instances they may not be. The fourth watch lightning round is coming up. But first, we go way back and talk Media Bistro and Media Bistro's founder, Laurel Toby. You were previously the editor Chief also at Media Bistro, where we never crossed paths. I got there uh, when I was writing for TV Newser in 2007. Uh, but I got to just ask you, you worked with Laurel Toby, who I think is a great character in the media environment. Uh, yeah. what, do you, what do you remember most? What sticks out about your Media Bistro time?
1: Yeah, I'm still friends with Laurel and, and her husband, John, uh, although I haven't seen them since before pandemic.
0: Yeah, lovely.
1: And, and, you know, Laurel is, I think Laurel might be the only um, woman executive I've ever worked directly for. So I was really interested when I got there to, you know, to sort of have that experience and see how her management style would be different. Uh, and, and with Laurel, you know, she's she's the kind of ideas person who has this endless supply of energy, um, and she still does. Uh, so my, my experience there was that, you know, Laurel and I could have, we could disagree about stuff and it was fine. Like we, we would have a discussion about it. Um, she had a very clear vision for what she wanted to do with Media Bistro. Um, and you know, she, she worked at it for a decade before she sold that company. And I think, you know, I, I know a lot of web entrepreneurs who spun something up and sold it to like Facebook 12 months later. But it takes a lot of patience to run a company for a decade through uh, through a recession yeah. and yeah. and you know change the business model multiple times and still make it work. So I, I admire her for that. I think she um, you know she did something very hard that people don't always realize is hard.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I loved working with Laurel, and uh, it was a great, it was really my my entry into the media. and It was a great, a great one. Uh, she's she's great, really a unique, unique a character. All right, let's get to the uh, the last thing. Six questions, sixty seconds or so. Where were you born?
1: Uh, Montgomery, Alabama.
0: You're the head of the insurrection now, which, by the way, I, I, as an aside, has <laughs> yeah, kind of... I probably
1: have to rebrand it. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad for
0: business now, the way that that, that term has gotten uh, used over the last few months. Anyway, uh, what is one benefit and one cost of your current jobs?
1: Uh, well, I, have, I feel like I have eight jobs, so it depends on which one we're talking about. But uh, the political stuff we do, messaging and polling, the benefit is that I, I I don't ever worry that what I'm doing doesn't matter at all. Like, we know elections matter. Um The the cost is that the political work we do, you know, doesn't pay well. Like you you really have to love doing it. So that's why I also have other jobs. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line.
0: Who's someone who's been a mentor for you?
1: Um, Kurt Anderson, who co-founded Spy Magazine. Uh, He's built a career that I really admire where where he pursues a lot of different things that he's interested in. Um, And, you know, is, is more of a generalist. And he's he's. Um, insanely smart and a great writer. And, and I think I, even at the beginning of my career, I, I sort of looked at him and thought that that's what I want my career to be like. I want to be able to write. I want to be able to work on entrepreneurial stuff. I want to be able to work on a lot of different projects that, that interest me. Um, and he's just, he's always encouraged me. gives me good advice when I come to him for it. So, yeah.
0: Nice. Uh, who is one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people?
1: Um. Well, since you and I are on the different end of a political spectrum, you know I respect and like Raihan Salam, who I've known for uh, probably twenty years now. And just, i just—I just thought of him because we—I had drinks uh, Sunday with a mutual friend of ours, and realized I haven't seen Raihan in a long time. Um, but uh, you know, we we know each other from way back, and we were in a, a program together that was a kind of foreign policy. Program where we were the only people who didn't drive, and <laughs> were, were they, there was like a bike ride or something, and neither of us wanted to do it. And I, I just remember we we pout around a lot during that trip. So
0: nice. Yeah. Uh, Who's one person in the media you think's really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention?
1: Um, I feel like there there are a lot of people in kind of a microwave that are are doing cool stuff. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm sort of looking at some of the, actually, some of the Substack people are trying to figure out how to expand what they're doing. Like, you know, Rusty Foster's Day in Tabs has a just cult following. Anyway, he's done stuff like putting ads on the newsletter, but, but also thinking about how to how to run it in a way that might be scalable. And maybe this is just a recycling into what happened with blogs where a lot of things consolidate or, or they develop the usual kind of business lines. But Um, maybe because I have entrepreneurial instincts myself, I, I, I sort of look at people who are trying to start things from scratch and then scale them with, with like no money. Uh, I, I think that's, that's, that's where a lot of experimentation comes from when people are, you know, under-resourced, but they're, they're trying to be innovative.
0: Nice. Last one, one year from today, what's one prediction for the media?
1: Uh, I, I think, uh, we won't be writing about Substack anymore. (laughs)
0: That'd be nice I to move we'll on to something else. It.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and hopefully, we'll, we'll not have moved on to cryptocurrency based publications. But I, I, I don't know. Blockchain.
0: All right. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Spires, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you to Elizabeth Spires. Go follow her on Twitter at E or her Substack is my new band is. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. You can subscribe for free fourthwatch.media comes out approximately three times a week join me let's build a better media together and make sure you download follow like rate review subscribe to this podcast on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts this was produced at full circle studios in addison texas next episode joined by former trump press secretary kaylee mcenady back soon stay safe talk to you then